Hey guys, welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerlingbiro. There is so much to talk about in the pop culture zeitgeist right now. I mean, everything from that nonstop Joker discourse to Netflix totally dominating awards season. And that incredible finale of one of my all-time favorite shows, Succession. So this week, I wanted to bring in a brilliant mind to talk to me about all this and more. I'm very happy to have critic and editor-in-chief of Awards Watch, Eric Anderson, with me this week. Eric, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Before we get into some of these topics, I wanted to ask you, because this year for me... um, has included not just great content, but literally brilliant, like things like Parasite and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Succession, Fleabag, Russian Doll. I haven't even seen Marriage Story and Irishman, and I'm pretty sure they're going to be great. But is this a particularly good year? You know, I, I think sometimes it's it's twofold. We see the things that we want to see uh, in hopes and anticipation that they'll be good, and sometimes that can kind of make something or make it a, a movie or a show or a, a season almost seem better than it is because you've you're just kind of focused on the things that you already might be more inclined to but i think it's a fantastic year both television and film but i also think that every year is there's <laughs> great when when people say this is a, a bad year for movies i'm then I have to ask them, then what are you seeing? Because what I'm seeing says something different. It's just that there's a few things that, I mean, I think that like, for example, Succession, which we'll talk about more at the end of the show, but it's like, I remember watching The Wire. I have that same feeling. It's this is like peak TV. This is, this is prestige TV, I should say. It's just something better than anything else out there for a while. And and that was for me watching Parasite too, which I know not many people have seen yet, but just something just out extraordinary. It is. I think what happens sometimes, especially with something like Parasite, which just had a, a huge box office debut, but it was only in New York and LA in four theaters, three theaters. So not a lot of people saw it. It just has tremendous buzz it hit a lot of festivals so a lot of people saw it there so what happens sometimes especially when you're you know looking at at twitter and social media is that you see this influx of this movie's great this show is great but i haven't seen it yet and i think sometimes there can be such a build up and once people do finally get to it it may be great but the build up to it has been so enormous that it's almost destined to fall short a bit right i don't think that's going to happen with parasite because it's one of the best things i've ever seen in my life see but see, you're, first that's what i'm telling you we're not deluding ourselves <laughs> <laughs> anyway go I, I get your point i know what you're saying yeah yeah and that that's kind of that's kind of then circles back to the idea of you know you're going to see the things that you want to see anyway. There's not a lot of people if you're not, you know, a, a critic or someone that does this for a living, you're not going to go out of your way to see something that you think will probably not interest you. Right. So you have to you have to either have a a a a broader horizon of of something that you want to see or you allow yourself to be, you know, influenced by film criticism or 
the internet or whatever it is for better or for worse. Right, right. Well, something that everyone has been to see all over the world is Todd Phillips' Joker. The worldwide box office is, is through the roof, almost historic numbers, I understand. It won the top prize in Venice, but then all of a sudden it got mixed reviews after and some really big discussions um, about the movie. I, there is so much to talk about with this movie. And you're right, the box office for it is astronomical and not just that first weekend which was really big but it the much more important second weekend it didn't have you know this big traditional drop off the it was enormous mm -hmm. the second weekend was huge and that there's a lot of you know reasons people think that that happened that they were too nervous to see it in the first weekend and then everything seemed safe and okay and went the second weekend and I don't know how true that is, but I think it does speak to the sheer volume of conversation that happened around the film that I think both amplified its visibility and the sort of, I have to see this for, for what it is. And I guess I, w I would have to say it felt like it it wasn't the right conversation to have. It felt like the conversation about, well, is this going to start violence? Is this the uh, the type of story that we need to be telling in 2019? It's not that those conversations can't be had, but the way that it was happening in the media, in all aspects of it, was... I felt really over the top and I would never use, you know, woke culture as a, as a negative, the way that, that some people do, but it was, it felt like that media felt like they had to say it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they, that, that they, that they had to do it. And I think what that did was just kind of stir, stir the pot rather than actually be interested in having a conversation about, how something like mental illness and comic book movies and context matter. Right. No, that was completely forgotten. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those who, who and I may lose a few listeners here, but but I did not get the um, five stars celebration of this movie. I mean, I and I don't think that it's a movie that will cause people to run off and and be violent. Um, hopefully not after the discourse either. But it's not so much that it just really. Um, was just so simplistic. I thought it would, especially when I had seen Parasite in the same week, um, the sort of interesting commentary on economic inequality, which people were sort of talking about after Venice that this film was supposed to have, I just felt that it didn't. And it was, it was not as sophisticated that I thought it was going to be. The thing that I think troubled me the most about the discourse around the film is that it reminded me of the days when, with music, uh, when <laughs> Tipper Gore created the Parents Music Resource Center to slap uh, uh, warning labels on music. Oh, right, right. And it was the kind of thing where m media was then now doing the job of right-wing and conservative thought that, you know, movies can cause violence when for decades and decades 
the position of movies and media around the movies is that no, they don't cause violence. And that's why we should be allowed to have kind of basically any type of movie or music or television show that we want to have. Because once, once you dip your foot into the pool of, yes, this piece of art may cause violence or something horrible, you, you run the risk of allowing that to turn into censorship and you play right into the hands of right-wing thought. Yeah, and it was it was interesting because even the, um, the the family members of the victims of the Aurora shootings, where they they were the victims were shot at a showing of um, uh, what was it Dark Knight. Um, they even wrote a letter to Warner Brothers concerning the Joker, um, where they didn't ask for the movie not to be shown. They they were not calling for any sort of censorship. They were just saying that please donate money uh, or don't donate money to any politicians. You know, involves the NRA or and and please talk about gun violence and and things like that, which I thought was a really really good message. I totally agree. And if you can't listen to the actual people that were impacted and then just make a unilateral decision against that, then then who's who's good are you actually serving? But do you have any idea? Okay, so in terms of, of just the incredibly divisive nature of not just the discourse and violence, but why it's been so loved and hated by critics, really hailed as a masterpiece. And then it comes over to the States and it just, I, you know, mostly have been hearing, at least in, in you know, discussions about it, that people don't think it's very good. I, th- I think a lot has been in response to Todd Phillips and his comments that, you know, he stopped making comedies because of woke culture and you can't make a good comedy anymore, which was just such a ridiculous, ridiculous statement when you have dozens of comedies a year that are outstanding parasite is a dark comedy so don't tell me that you can't make a really great darkly comic funny abrasive intelligent movie he's just coming from a a position of making dumb comedies so that's really what he was saying he was saying oh i can't you know use slurs and language that are not okay now. And, and that was, that was kind of a, a, a bigger picture. And I think that became a big part of the conversation and negative critique about the film mm-hmm. as well. He pissed people off basically. <laughs> he did. Yeah. And it was just a, it was, um, it was a really arrogant and whiny comment. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I thought it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. What are you ta- what are you hearing about the Oscar chances for this movie though? That's that's a whole other issue and I I think that you know Joaquin Phoenix obviously is is in a great position. I know a lot of people think that he can win. I don't think he can win. Uh, but I will say if anything last year showed us that uh, bad reviews can be completely overcome by really great box office. Mhm. Are you you're speaking Especially, Bohemian Rhapsody? Specifically, yeah, specifically to Bohemian Rhapsody, and you know, Green Book to a a, a different extent, mm-hmm. uh, different obviously kind of movie and different narrative and everything. But I don't I don't think it will play exactly the same way for 
for Phoenix. Uh, you, I mean, for Rami Malek, he was playing a beloved real person, and the Oscars love real people, and this is not quite the same thing. But the box office for the film is the kind of thing that, that can propel it to a, a lot of branch support, which could get it into Best Picture. So who do you think will? You said you don't think Joaquin will win, even though he'd be nominated. Uh, I think Adam Driver is mm. going to win for Marriage Story. Well, that segues into, nicely into my next topic, and that is about Netflix and Oscar domination and streamers in general. I know that a lot of my listeners are sort of wondering about all this talk about Netflix really wanting to get into the Oscar race, which they did a lot last year with Roman. Tell me a little bit about um, how this works, that Netflix, you have to have a theatrical release, right? You do. That, that is a requirement, but even for the Oscars, you only need to be in, you only need to play in a Los Angeles theater for one week before the end of the year. Uh, and so what happens a, a lot of times is studios will do a very limited release for a film and then it will go wide in the new year. That's been common practice for many, many years. Uh, this will be a little bit different this year because of the shortened race. So everything's much tighter. So you're not going to see as many uh, platform releases coming out at the end of the year because by the time anybody sees them, we're already going to be into nominations. And, right, because the Oscars are already on, on February 9th this year. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, instead of at the end of the month. But um, why is it such a – is it – does Netflix want to be in the Oscar race? Because um, this year they have just a few to mention. The Irishman, which is Martin Scorsese's Marriage Story, The Two Popes, Dolomite is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy. Um, why do you think that it's, is it a credibility thing that Netflix really wants to be in on the Oscar race, or is it money? Uh, I don't. I don't think it's money because they have that. They they they, <laughs> they don't need money. They don't need to rely on on box office uh, to to push their their revenue. They have an entirely different revenue stream, which is not the same as studios. For studios, their revenue stream is box office and you know to a lesser extent Blu-rays and DVDs and things like that. Um, I'm I'm really fascinated by. The Netflix and and Amazon and their their approach to box office and theatrical releases and and the Oscars because especially Netflix they really want to disrupt the system that is kind of their their whole thing but at the same time they still want to be a part of of the group and that is that's always going to be a, a fascinating push and pull between you know wanting to uh be a part of the gang as well as wanting to have your own gang (laughs) (laughs) and i i I think it's it's as it's as classic a story as anything that you'll find and experience yourself in school you know Mm -hmm. you'll you're if you're an outsider you can kind of enjoy the fact that you're an outsider but at the same time you always you also want to be a part of the group and and I think that's what's happening with uh, with Netflix and the Oscars. They want to be the disruptors, but they want that uh, that recognition as well. 
And I, and I think what they're doing this year compared to last year, because it was just Roma, everything was Roma. And although they did extremely well with, you know, critics awards and with nominations and the three Oscars that it did win, it fell short of, of best picture. And there's a, there's a few reasons why. And I, I think that being a non-English language film was, was certainly one of, of those things. But I, uh, I think the bigger narrative that happened with Roma and Netflix uh, was the conversation about how much money they spent on the campaign, which, you know, depending on who you believe and listen to was 20 million or 30 million. And that's a lot of money and studios, other studios just don't have that, uh, that bank to be able to, to do that. And I think that was, I think it pushed a lot of people away from from wanting to to get it into a best picture win. I think there was some, some antipathy to that. And so this year, by having so many films, they can spread the wealth a little bit. And I think it was it'll look better as a result. Right. And it will look a little more normal, you know? But the fact that, that Netflix spends so much money on campaigning and, and, and getting their people out there for and for the Oscars really says something that the Oscars are still pretty important. That for something like Netflix, a new type of streamer, new type of way that we're watching media today, Oscars could seem like something outdated. But the fact that they still want in there so badly says something. Or am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. I, I think it is kind of about, you know, covering all your bases. If you go to uh, Netflix headquarters in, in L.A., the their Oscars are on display right there in the lobby. And it's a really – it's a status symbol. And I think it will always be a status symbol, uh, no matter if it's a streamer or if it's a classic studio that's been around for 50 years. Um, it's still – the highest honor within an organization, within a vocation. You know, if you're an accountant and you get an accountant award at a regional or statewide uh, recognition, that's a big deal. It's a big deal for for that individual and a big deal for that group. And I don't see it as any different for filmmaking. It's, it's exactly the same. Right. So it's it's a it's a status, it's recognition, it's acknowledgement. Uh, you 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 can you can say that you want to disrupt all you want, but every person down into their core <laughs> still wants acknowledgement from other people, and that's just normal. All right, all right. Um, and and one would say that in these sort of these times that are pretty trying for for uh, movies in general and TV in terms of, of money. Um, the fact that someone is paying for such great content as a new three-hour Scorsese movie or, or Noah Baumbach's new movie, um, I have a hard time seeing what the problem is, but there are a lot of people who are not happy about this. Spielberg and Cannes Film Festival, lots of people have complained about Netflix sort of um, thea- theatrical uh, model. Um, why? What is the problem? Well, <laughs> for, for, for Cannes at least, you know, you, you, you have to release your film almost immediately uh, in France after it's uh, at the festival. And 
Netflix's international deal does not work that way. Sometimes it's up to three years. And so that just became uh, an untenable issue. And that's, that is something that either that one or the other two is going to have to uh, compromise on, but it's a pretty big compromise because mm-hmm. it's, that's a lot of time. And Netflix has already shown this year its willingness to compromise with its uh, theatrical window, at least in in the United States, because Marriage Story is getting a full month in theaters before it goes uh, on to Netflix, which is longer than Roma last year. Uh, Irishman 2, The Two Popes, they're all getting three to four weeks of theatrical time first but they're also in a a bit of a catch-22 because the major uh theater movie theater chains won't play netflix right so it's they sort of want to play the game but they're also not being allowed to play the game so somebody has to has to budge somebody has to move uh in order for for that to happen but I don't know if that's exactly what Netflix wants because then that puts them basically in the same realm as a regular studio. And they, they don't want that. It's going to be a constant push and pull every year like this. Mm-hmm. You think so? So, so sort of yeah. the old Academy people won't catch up? Probably not right away, yeah. I mean we, we have a, a tremendously – different academy than just a few years ago now and and it is ever changing and because netflix and amazon are such massive content creators there and not just that there's also apple and and you know disney is it's everybody has has this now and wants to kind of jump into the game but they are allowing uh a tremendous amount of creativity and diversity in the, their storytelling that the traditional studios are still afraid to do because they are so beholden to uh, box office and hitting bottom lines based on budgets. And so that will that will always keep studios behind and always put streamers ahead. So when you're looking at a group like the Academy, just like just under 10,000 people and the majority are actors. The actors are the one that are going to be propelling the choice of our streamers where we want to work because they have great work. Mm -hmm. Or is it the old studio system that has served us so well for so long? And that's in, that is absolutely going to change, but we're just not going to see it like immediately. Right, right. Um, and another thing that I think has been interesting sort of in the beginning here of this award season, and I think it may have to do with Roma, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that movies like Parasite, which is a Korean movie, and Pedro Almodovar's movie, um, Pain and Glory, have been so talked about and discussed already now in the award season, and not just for um, getting into best foreign picture, actually chatter about getting into best picture has things changed in terms of the international part of the um uh, the uh, oscar contingency so to speak absolutely because it's 
it's non-U.S. members and international members that have made up the largest percentage of new members of the last four years, which is really exciting. And it's very great news for something like Parasite. It's it's how we got, you know, Paul Palowski uh, in director last year. And I think we're going to see more of that. That's assuming, too, that new members that are given invitations actually accept membership and vote. You know, you, you, you can you can look at the fact that, you know, 800 new members were invited. It doesn't mean 800 new members are going to accept and vote. Right, right, right. <laughs> you, do, you don't you don't know. But do you think also sort of the um, the American part of the Academy um, are, are, you know, getting more interested in having movies like Roma and, and this year Parasite and Almodovar in, in the larger race that things are changing in that sense as general? I, th- I think so. And I'd like to to hope so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope so. And I think I think something that's really beneficial for both Pain and Glory and Parasite uh, this season is that they're both. Uh, just opened so that's those are October releases rather than you know tiny release like I mentioned earlier a tiny release at the end of December that a general audience isn't going to see until well after the Oscars right and now they'll get a chance to see it for a much longer period absolutely and as we were saying at the beginning Parasite is one of the best movies we've ever seen (laughs) oh yeah yeah so you oh, better yeah. go out and see that. Um, and, and now let's go to um, something else that's the best I've ever seen, at least. I'd like to get your take on it. The season finale of Succession. <laughs> um, uh, am I? Uh, did you think it was as good as I did? Uh, I loved it. Mm. I loved it. It is um, the jump from season one to season two in depth and quality is has been so enormous and i loved season one it was really really fun uh it is now just at the highest shakespearean level (laughs) possible and i think it is extraordinary yeah i mean even from every single episode pretty much this season like from turn haven where the two families meet um over a dinner i mean as you were saying the highest shakespearean level i don't think i've seen anything like it for the longest time in tv um and it's been like that every single episode this season i don't know how they've been able to write at this level um well they just won the the emmy for writing uh, for for last year, which was a fantastic and huge uh, upset over over Game of Thrones, and that was a very deserved win. Well, wait until next I, year when this season is up for the Emmys, right? Exactly, and I'm hoping that the Golden Globes and Screen Actors Guild take notice uh, of this second season because that's when it'll be eligible for them. Because if there are not multiple SAG nominations for this show, something is really going wrong do you have an idea as uh, what appeals to us with this show they're really hideous characters it, if you think about it it is i think the thing that it, that is appealing is the exact same thing that is abhorrent to us and especially you know every everything has to be seen and told in context of the time that we're in and what it's a reflection of and, and everything else. And that's whether it's a, a movie or a TV show or a song. It's like, where where is this in ex- 
Where does it exist in 2019 and why? And I think some of the the pushback of the show in the first season was the idea of not wanting to watch the problems of extremely, extremely, extremely rich people. Uh, even though that was that was such a bread and butter for television for so many decades, right? Yeah, uh, for for both networks and for audiences. You know, we watched Dynasty and Dallas and and all of these soapy family shows about extremely rich people doing terrible things to each other, and and that was that's kind of what this is. This is this is that on a uh, a much better <laughs> written level, and. I, I think the the point that Succession kind of turned a really good corner was really actually in the second half of the first season because the setup for it and even the title of the show was that, you know, Brian Cox was going to die and who was going to take over. And then he didn't. And that was a really smart thing to do <laughs> because it, it's propelled every bit of storytelling since and brought us that stunning season two finale from last night oh my god yeah so i think what's happening is still a little bit of the uh uh anger anger at the one percent anger at you know uh fox news which is essentially what you know it's part of what succession is is uh a metaphor for or, or a stand-in for um so there is there is always going to be this vicarious sense of wow I would really love to just jump on a helicopter and go out on this massive <laughs> two hundred yeah. yacht. Uh, while at the same time I really can't wait to see these people tear each other apart because I hate rich gross people and that is an impossibly alluring combination of loving something and hating something in equal parts, but making it so imminently watchable. But at the same time, haven't they just slowly and surely made us, I mean, we really like this family now. I mean, I had, I remember watching this specific, specific episode, this Churn Haven, where I was like, I was irritated at the other family, the Pierces. I was, I was, <laughs> it felt like I was part, I was, you know, I had, I know what a dysfunctional family is. I'm happy you get starting to like them. You're starting to see them more as, you know, um, father, son, the relationship. This, I mean, in this last episode, when the, um, the three siblings were Roman asks, do you think we'll ever be able to talk to each other normally? And the other ones start making a joke. I mean, when you have this sort of normal and, and weird relationship between them, that's also really nice. I mean, we're starting to get into this family too. I, I think that's, that speaks exactly and directly to how well this show is written because you, you just mentioned that the Pierce family which essentially is this the opposite right they're the of, I mean they're of, the ones we should be. <laughs> exactly they are they are we have our values of, yes yeah. they're kind of liberal they they are they are wealthy people but they are I guess let's quote unquote good people but as a viewer you you have already aligned with the Roy family so 
it challenges your own ideas of what you think about things. And I don't think there is uh, a more fascinating element to any art or media than when it can challenge the things that you hold very dear or think that you hold dear. And, and that is, that is to me just such a, a, a huge mark of, of success. One of the brilliant things about that particular episode is that the writer on it is actually a writer who worked on The Onion and on John Oliver's show. So that's why you he it feels like you really get the language of both sort of the right and the left <laughs> um, and, and, and what's both um, interesting about that in a way that he really knew um, the sort of sensibilities of each side. In a way that maybe yes. another traditional, I, I, you get the feeling that other episodes are written by very sort of theatrical Shakespearean writers in a different way. But this one was particularly catered for that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I don't think that you can write intelligently if you don't treat each side, not with respect, but with with knowledge and intelligence. Uh, and, and I think that that episode did exactly that. And now I just have to, before I let you go, majorly spoil this la the last few minutes of the last episode here, <laughs> because I have to get your take on 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 what happened here. So what happened was that that um, well, you you tell me your take on what happened with Kendall and his father. So you know, as you're going through this episode, and they are all seated around the dining table of this 200 foot mega yacht and trying to decide who the fall guy is going to be for the, the cruising, uh, the cruise line disaster. And, you know, they're, they're looking at, uh, Jerry and Frank and Carl and, <laughs> and Greg sprinkles. That was so funny. Yeah. Uh, and you know, none of those were quite enough. And so it ultimately then falls on on Kendall and the, the fascinating final conversation that, that Kendall and Logan have of why he will take the fall and Kendall asking his dad, you know, would you have ever picked me anyway? And he says, no, because you're not a killer. And there's obviously a great irony to that because the end of the first season was Kendall crashing that car and killing that waiter. Right. But so he's a manslaughter, yes. but he's not a yeah. He's not a, he's not a killer. Business, yes, yeah. yes. Is what is found in the same in the same way that like Shiv is because Shiv is she's a killer. Right. She got she got she got Rhea out, uh, but she will always be up against uh, Logan just by virtue of being a female. Right. So I think Kendall took that. You're not a killer, and decided to backstab in again the most deliciously uh, Shakespearean way possible. His father on live television at the press conference by instead of falling on the knife himself to turn it around and put it in his father's back. But the thing that is key in that moment is the final shot of Logan watching it happen 
and that very Man. small upturned smile. I mean, Brian Cox can do that. I mean, everyone saw that tiny little smile. Absolutely. And so I think as, as, a, as a viewer and as a lover of the show and as, you know, looking at everything that happened in that episode, this was entirely orchestrated by Logan to happen exactly as it happened. So that's what he you was think. ready. He knew this I would do. happen because other others are saying that he that he was impressed. He was caught off guard, but he still thought mm, there's the killer. Oh, def- definitely impressed. Yes. But I think also, too, because earlier in the episode when it was suggested that he be the fall guy, he was kind of ready to do that. And I don't think for a moment that he wanted any of his kids to be to have that happen and to, to go to jail and have their life ruined as, as much as you can ruin a billionaire's life. Um, so I do believe that he orchestrated it to happen exactly as it happened. And yes, he was impressed and happy that Kendall stepped up to the plate to do it because it did prove him to be the person that Logan wants him to be. Do you think, do you think Kendall knows that? Uh, no, I don't. No, I completely, I, I, it was interesting to hear because I completely agree with you. I also think that, that Logan knew this was going to happen and this is what he wanted and he steered it as he, as he, I think he has steered his children in, in all kinds of di- different directions that as, as evil that he seems to be, he knows them quite well. He knew that he was sending Shiv to Rhea. He knew that he, what Roman could do over there. I mean, it's like he knows this even though he seems to be aloof, so to speak. Exactly. It's it's the very thing that keeps, not, you know, keeps his hands from being dirty, but he is. He is a general who is sending out troops to do the dirty work. They just happen to be his kids. How are we going to wait a year? <laughs> <laughs> Where's Marsha? <laughs> yeah. No kidding. I mean, do you have do you have a theory? Like someone on on Twitter was saying that she that, is she murdered. I mean, where is she? I, that would be really strange and really wouldn't make a whole lot no, of it sense. Wouldn't. I, I, uh, I I think that she was very clearly um, hurt and distressed about Logan and, and Rhea and what that potentially could have been. Uh, to to a point of just really removing herself and i hope that's all it is because it would i she's a character who's really gotten the short shrift this season she's had a couple of really good juicy stuff especially with shiv um but i yeah especially as the only woman of color on the show it's really unfortunate that that she hasn't had much to do there's there is a dynamic there a stepmother dynamic that is uh you can mine a lot of material from that but i think they did most of that in season one with her and so there's i'm hoping they have a plan for her i'm hoping that me too in, in that there is something to this that will come back in season three because otherwise it's sort of a wasted opportunity that's the only it, only crit- criticism i have because i don't want to because <laughs> i love this I, show. <laughs> I yeah i have the exact same same criticism because she they were sort of positioning her to be a bit of uh 
to, to make it a little bit Macbeth and that she was really like a, a, a string puller behind the scenes. And it just kind of, that didn't really go anywhere. Well, but. anyway, I've, the, we having to wait for season three is going to be, gonna, <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> but, I know. But, but in the meantime, let's just hope it sweeps a bunch of awards, right? Because that would be weird if it didn't. I hope so. I hope so. It, it it did okay at the at the Emmys with that the the two the wins that it got for the main title music and for the screenplay. So that puts it on. And that was season one. So and season two has that was been season one. outstanding. So yeah. So that's yeah. Just to 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 be clear, any nominations it gets from the Golden Globes or the Screen Actors Guild will be for season two because they are calendar year based, not. Uh, uh, television season based. It has to be an ensemble, right? An ensemble nomination for that. I'm serious. I I will burn things down if it's not. <laughs> well, I'll come and join you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Eric, thank you so much. This was fun. This was awesome. I'm. I was. I'm. Yeah. I was really happy to do this. This was fun. Thank you so much to Eric Anderson. You can follow him on awardswatch.com and on Twitter at awards underscore watch. And thank you so much for listening. Please get in touch about any of these topics that we talked about today or anything you want to tell us about here on Pop Culture Confidential. You can get in touch on Twitter at podpopculture. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a minute, please rate the show. It helps others to find us. This episode was edited by Julia Scott, and I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.